Facebook has created its own Supreme Court. Yes, you heard it right. And this Supreme Court will decide in a matter of days if Donald Trump can be led back into Facebook. To talk to us about how this body came to be, what a Harvard professor's college friendships have to do with it, how they managed to get Nobel Prize winners to be involved, and what this major decision will mean, we have the great pleasure to be joined by Kate Klonick, a leading expert on internet law, who was given exclusive access to sit in the rooms with Mark Zuckerberg and co where these decisions were made and is sharing with us what we're getting right about the company and what we're missing entirely. I'm your host Zoya Soroy and this is The Dive, a show born out of the Harvard Kennedy School where we bring you experts from Harvard, Yale, Brown and beyond to break down the news for you super simply. good to go yep okay well thank you so much um for being a guest here we are big fans of yours so it's always a bit surreal and um it feels very good um that you have taken time off your busy schedule to talk to us so thank you for that i am so happy to be here Uh, i just wanted to ask you first of all from a personal um, perspective. What exactly spiked your interest in Facebook? And how did you go about um, reporting on their oversight board in such detail? And how did you get permission to even do so? Yeah, of course. Those are all great questions. So I've been covering online speech since around 2015. I was a PhD student at Yale Law School. And I was working on things that were related to the internet, things like shaming. And I got interested in basically how sites took down copyright, if there was anything more than just the pure notice and takedown. And the the short answer is that they basically don't do much more than that. And so it was going to be a very boring paper. But what I decided instead was that I had discovered that there was all of this non-copyright related content that was getting removed from the site. And I started researching that. And so I was doing that and had published uh, a law review paper on that in the spring of 2018. And so a few months later, um, with the takeaway of that paper basically being that these private companies were governing our public rights to speech. And the takeaway from that paper was that there needs to be more due process, transparency, accountability, and in particular, kind of a a way for people to appeal these uh, decisions that the private companies are making. And um, in November of 2018, Mark Zuckerberg announced that in fact, there would be a new type of uh, Facebook, quote unquote, Supreme Court that was going to start. Facebook announced plans to create a new oversight panel by the end of the year. It would rule over controversial content decisions. This includes when to label a post as hate speech. The company's CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, has previously equated this panel to a Supreme Court. Um, It was called the Oversight Board, and that was a working name, but it ended up sticking. Um, But it was going to do that type of appeals content. It was going to look at things that were on appeal, and people could then take them outside of Facebook to a body of experts to weigh in on them. And so that was obviously just what I had gotten finished writing about. And so... I started kind of following how this was happening and what Facebook was doing to implement it. And I have a background as a journalist. And so I had gone to them and basically said, listen, I wrote this other paper. You can, you know, I have these tools to be able to do this. I can be an unbiased eye. And also I have 
you know, you're saying right now that you want transparency and accountability. Like what better way to put your money where your mouth is than to let me in and report on this as you do it. That's an excellent selling point. Right. I mean, well, <laughs> that was very much, I mean, that was very much my selling point. I was just kind of like, well, I've, I'm asking you to do this. And if you say no, then there's going to be a story there that you turn me down. And if you said, I mean, it probably wouldn't have been much of a story because they turned down most people. Um, but they, the people who were in charge of it saw some merit to that and decided that that was in fact what they would do. And I'm, would be naive to suggest that there wasn't also elements of like, yeah, they were probably very pleased with the fact that it was going to be published in a top law review and that it was going to be published in a major um, US publication. Um, uh, it gave the project some legitimacy, but they really had no idea how I was going, what, the, what I was going to say or the job that I was going to do with it. And I had going into it just a, a very I had a number of conversations with some close journalist friends and all of them were kind of like you just have to be able to walk away from these sources and never look back and just basically be okay if you come out with something that they really aren't going to like uh, like it if you report on and there were plenty of those moments it doesn't seem like it but there's plenty of those moments in like the piece and you know I still think that that that's something that if like that I have to that you have to do if you're going to to do this type of academic uh, and journalistic work. Kate Klonick's piece, by the way, was published in February of this year in The New Yorker. It's a fantastic piece. And it's called Inside the Making of Facebook's and Supreme Court. How how would you describe the experience overall? Um, how would I? Exhausting? <laughs> <laughs> I was... Um, you have to, I was very, very, very tired. I'm really glad that people recommended that I sought outside funding because I would have funded my, I would have, I was never going to take any money from Facebook, obviously, but I was going to fund out of my own pocket, my own like salary, like basically, you know, hotels to stay for four, yeah. four nights in Palo Alto and everything else. And I ended up getting funding. So that made spread the work a little bit I was able to I was able to you know hire research assistants who wrote up transcripts for all of my audio tapes I was able to kind of I was able to stay at a hotel instead of like crash on friends couches um, but basically it was an, it was a really interesting experience but it was also very meta there was kind mm -hmm. of I would say there was a kind of a constant there was a constant kind of feeling of you're getting close to people. You've worked with them for many, many months. You've come in and done this, but you're still not of them. Mm. You know that they're putting on some type of show for you. You don't know how paranoid to be about kind of what that show is or how much you should take what you're given at face value. Um, and so you kind of go back to your room every night after like kind of having spent all this time inside Facebook and kind of go over your notes and you try to, piece it all together from the outside and make sense of what is in the black box and what parts you're seeing are real and what are not and it's just it's and you do it all by yourself and so it's a little bit lonely and it's a little mm. bit exhausting and it's exciting at times there are times when you're just like wow this is going to be huge like when I get to like report on this but it's not going to be exciting for a long time because you know it's going to be six months before you print that in any type of place that it's going to make a difference, you know? So um, I don't know. I would say that that's just kind of, it's very solitary. It's, mm. uh, believe it or not, this type of, this type of kind of, this way of doing research. 
Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I wanted to ask you because this this whole oversight board followed kind of a public backlash that Facebook experienced. Facebook stock taking yet another hit, down more than 2%. A backlash brewing after data firm Cambridge Analytica allegedly accessed the personal information of 50 million unsuspecting Facebook and users. It, it is quite the change um, when you compare it to how Facebook was perceived at first and for, for, for some years. Um, what was the tipping point that kind of tipped the scale of sort of like, oh, innovator, good guy to bad guy? Yeah, I think that that's a tremendously hard question to answer, but a great one. Um, it has been quite some time that people started to slowly understand but I would say understand badly the power that these companies had over them. Tech giants are increasingly under scrutiny from politicians, regulators, and experts on the left and the right. Some are concerned about their growing power, even calling them monopolies. And the tension keeps building, whether over privacy, politics, or the displacement of workers by automation. So I would say that they got upset about some of the things that I don't think they needed to get upset about and not upset enough about other types of ways the companies uh, were controlling you. And I I can't like pinpoint the exact moment, but I would say that it got all got so much worse after the 2016 U.S. presidential election. How did Facebook, which prides itself on being able to process billions of data points, and instantly transform them into personal connections for its user, somehow not make the connection that electoral ads paid for in rubles were coming from Russia. I would say that was really the moment that you first saw that and well, Cambridge Analytica came after that, but like that was the moment that you really saw these companies in the spotlight demand people demanding accountability they didn't really even know what they wanted accountability of they didn't know what they wanted to see to see the algorithm whatever that is however you even understand that but basically i, I always took i take the outrage against tech to even though i think that a lot of times it's it's not particularly super well informed i take it to be expressing a really well informed intuition which is that these companies have a massive amount of power. Mm -hmm. And so obviously one of the solutions that Facebook came up with is their version of the Supreme Court, the Oversight Board. What is exactly the Oversight Board? How did this idea evolve? And who are the Supreme Court justices of the Oversight Board? Yeah, so the oversight board um, is the it, it, it was an idea of having the idea of an outside board or an outside appellate kind of group, a court, so to speak, um, is is not a new idea. It's something that has been moving around circles and those who study internet law for years. Rebecca McKinnon was one of the first people to talk about it and consent of the networked. It was something that people had considered for a long time. How it would come to fruition at scale was like a whole other 
question. Um, and it wasn't really clear whether or not, like, how what the g- genesis of such a group needed to be in order for it to have legitimacy. Maybe it needed to come from outside the companies, but it seemed impossible to implement without direct company involvement, just because of privacy reasons, but also just the sheer scale of the project and that much content being reviewed on appeal. Um, so one of the first people and kind of timing is everything but also he has um he has experience with this type of thing doing something similar in iraq um after the iraq war setting up the iraqi constitution but noah feldman at harvard law school my name is noah feldman my, my job is to study and to teach the constitution from its origins until the present came in and uh you know he was he knew cheryl sandberg at a personal level because they had gone to college together they were old friends and, you know, he was visiting her and he found he kind of had this like Facebook needs a Supreme Court epiphany. And he wrote up a memo and it was circulated to Cheryl and then it was circulated to Mark and it kind of took hold. And Mark had been thinking about it before. He'd been thinking about it for a long time. Various types of government like structures that could be put in place to solve some of these issues. And he told me that he had spent most of his time actually kind of like thinking about legislative answers and that not being a particularly robust um, framework that he had been able to develop. And so I think he would have gotten here eventually, but uh, Noah was definitely the catalyst and kind of put this in front of Zuckerberg and eventually it was implemented and Noah continued to consult for for the project, including while I was there. and so the the process to set up the board really moved in three steps. And the first step was six months long, and that was going around the world and seeing what people wanted to see in something like an oversight board. And to a certain extent, that was just buying time. As Klonik writes in her article, to get ideas and a feel of what people were thinking, Facebook gathered experts in workshops from New Delhi to New York, Nairobi, Berlin, Singapore, and more. In these workshops, it ran case simulations, showing, for example, a picture of a smiling girl in a yearbook photo with a thought bubble that said, kill all men. And as the audience, they thought this was hate speech, or if they thought this was a joke. But also it was an important step to just kind of go through and see what people actually thought or wanted in the board like this. It couldn't just spring from the head, straight from the head of Mark Zuckerberg to have legitimacy. People needed to feel invested in it. So that was like a like a strategic move. Um, and then they kind of went into what I call kind of the hard questions or drafting phase where they come up with the in, in like the institutional structure of how the of how mm. the institution is going to work and make a bunch of hard trade-off choices. Like is it going to have written decisions? Is it going to have dissents? Are we going to not write that into the founding documents? Or are we going to leave that and put that off and let the board itself decide that at some point? Well, how are we going to pick board members? We have to pick the first ones, but how are we going to ensure their independence from Facebook if we don't like, you know, if we if Facebook itself is the one picking them? So on and on. And at least for the board, this is like this is the problem for every question. Do we write it into the to the charter or the bylaws or do we like take and I say we I just kind of mean like I'm speaking as if like I am the group of people at Facebook, not that this was me making any of these decisions. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, to put it on record, they didn't consult you to write the I did no consulting. No, it was just conversations about this stuff. So there was and so like anyways, they but they ended up picking four the way around the board members anyways was that they would pick four co-chairs and then the board members would work with Facebook and pick the next 16 
till they got to 20 and then they would start here. They would start like their startup, their startup, basically. It was kind of, it was often compared to a startup organization, both in like the amount of money that was spent on it and just the idea that there was all of this institution building that was going on. Um, and so yeah. they, the start and the, the final people they selected were just an incredible group. Uh, there's a Nobel laureate, the former prime minister of Denmark. I am worried that if we don't do anything in the coming years, this will go completely out of control. And we, what we are trying to do in the oversight board, which is completely independent from Facebook, is very important for me to say that because none of the former editor in chief of the Guardian. Um, it's just a really, really robust group of experts in freedom of expression. And these people, do you think they were hesitant at first? I mean, what kind of convincing did they use in order to get them in? Because as you said, you know, former Danish PM, and you know, serving sort of the people and then kind of going the corporate route, working for Facebook in a way. Um, were they hesitant? Yeah, I think that there was a ton of hesitancy. I mean, they said they said as much. I mean, I think that um and Hella Thorning Schmidt, who was the prime minister, who the prime minister, former prime minister of Denmark that I mentioned, specifically told me that, you know, and Mark I should say that it wasn't like Mark Zuckerberg just spoke to her. He spoke to like I think all of the board members at some point, or mm -hmm. definitely all of the of the co-chairs at the very beginning, just to kind of assure them. But she kind of wanted assurance that this was just not this was not some giant PR move. Mm -hmm. Uh And that there was that they wanted to be serious about it and set up some a serious organization. Um, and I think that basically there was an idea that once once this started, it would be outside Facebook's reach, um, even just if, if for no other reason, pure public relations, it would be outside Facebook's reach. It would be outside their power mm. to basically control control this anymore. They couldn't tell all of these very strong willed and independent and uh, people how to come at what the outcome should be on a case. Um, and so there was a feeling that, well, this is maybe a, a moment to do a lot of good and make a really huge impact um, in freedom of expression and due process um, over freedom of expression on the internet. And I think that that's what drew a lot of people in and convinced them to kind of tether their personal reputations to the project. Mm -hmm. And to the skeptics who think that You know, even in in governments, even in democratic governments, there is still influence that bodies have over each other, etc. Let alone in a private company. Um, Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, nobody likes to give power away, and especially since you know he has been helming the whole organization for so long. And so, who doubt how independent this oversight um, board really is? Um, what would you say to them? Yeah, I think that there's, listen, I think that there's, it seems like maybe it's just, there's a lot of criticism of, well, maybe it's just a PR gambit. And I'm like, maybe it is just a PR gambit. Maybe it is just something, maybe it is something that serves Facebook, right? Like you said, like to convince them to give away power, no one likes to give away power, but like they do want to give away the power if the power is like only a liability for them. Mm. Like if you had, if you had like, like a flame, like if you had uh, a flamethrower, right? Uh, and you just could it and the on off switch was broken. Mm. It's like, that's a lot of power. But you, you know, would you would you like keep it plugged in and keep it around? No, you'd like throw it away because it's going to burn you or burn down something that you really care about. I think that they look at this 
as something similar. It's like a weird metaphor, but like that's, I think they look at the, it as something very similar. It is a lot of power they have over the speech, but it's not necessarily a power that does anything other than burn them over and over and over again. Um, they can't get to any type of solution on a lot of these hard problems because no one can get to a quote unquote right solution to any of these problems. They are intractable problems of speech of, and trying to incentivize and create safety for individuals and to, to minimize harmful speech and to also incentivize more speech and more good speech and political speech and like and and helpful speech so to speak those are two things that we've had to trade off for all of time and history facebook hasn't solved that problem it's just exposed it in a totally new way at a totally new scale um and so i think it makes a lot of sense that they don't want this problem and so the fact that they want to give away the power to make those decisions just to me is like maybe it's in their best interest but also it is in the best interest of the entire world to mm. not have them being the one making these decisions. I don't know that the oversight board will be the one to, that should necessarily be making this, but at least it is a, it is a divestment of power that could turn into something else someday. And I think that that foot in the door was always what was so appealing to me about this project was the the, the potential that could come out of, of this very small, narrow grant of, of power. And so if we're using the, the metaphor of a Supreme Court, I mean, the Supreme Court it, um, uh, takes action, a decision on very important cases, but the day-to-day -day cases are taken in lower courts. And so you know, those who, uh, there are people who question, uh, fine, they might rule on important things, but will that substantially change anything about how information um, is being uh, communicated on online? I mean, it might not. And I think that this is going to increasingly be um, a problem. Like, I don't think this is a good customer service tool. But what it does is it highlights the moments that these really big policy shifts happen around certain types of policing of language. And it gives them, just like in the Supreme Court, and this is why the Supreme Court takes certain cases and, and there's like an entire big process in which they selectively determine which cases they think are ready or like and are, are, would be useful to discuss. The, this court does a similar thing out of the tens of thousands of millions of appeals that it, it is capable of hearing. Um, and we're going to see kind of, I think, a shift from, and so what you're going to have is like right now you have kind of this, this very free speech philic set of questions, right? It's like censor or not. And it's a free, the board is made up of people who are experts in freedom of expression. They're going to be more pro free speech, right? They're going mm -hmm. to restore a lot of content. But I think in the next couple of months, as they start seeing kind of some of this this content that's so problematic, I think you're going to see a lot of that content coming down and staying down because I think that you're going to see that uh, that people that it's very sympathetic a lot of the cases for harmful speech. How that all gets integrated into a rule is what we have been asking for and kept out of for the entire time that Facebook has mostly existed. And so I think that that's a value add any way you kind of cut it. And um, one of the most important decisions will definitely be the decision on whether Donald Trump should be allowed back. 
Facebook is asking its new oversight board to give a second opinion in its decision to indefinitely suspend former President Trump's account. Facebook says the former president can submit a statement explaining why he thinks the decision was wrong, and a group of five, five board members will make a decision within 90 days. Why is this decision so important? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's important for a number of reasons. I mean, this was, this, this was kind of, in many ways, this was kind of exactly the type of incredibly difficult, thorny issue that the was was often conjectured about the board taking it in its early stages when it was just like we were just kind of people were just thinking about it at facebook um and the idea was that no it would be really bad if a case like that came up or the case like what actually happened came up because the board would really need a time to like sit and like figure out what it was and develop as an institution and it's kind of have other types of smaller problems and walk before it could run, blah, 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 blah. But the, that's just not how the world ended up working. And this, this issue came down and you had, uh, you had Jack Dorsey and you had Mark Zuckerberg basically cutting off a democratically elected political figure access to speech because Good of incitement. We start with some breaking news. The president, President Trump, has been banned indefinitely from Facebook and Instagram and at least until the end of his presidency. Uh, according to Mark Zuckerberg, in a statement, he said the shocking events of the last 24 hours clearly demonstrate that President Donald Trump intends to use his remaining time in office to undermine the peaceful and lawful transition of power to his elected successor, Joe Biden. And uh, you can hate Trump or love Trump. That was a lot of power. Uh, and I think that the question really became instantly, isn't this why Facebook, you set up this entire oversight board and Facebook had to say, yes, you're right. This is exactly why we, we set this up. And so they, they took the decision and put it in, uh, took the decision and sent it to the oversight board and they're deciding it. And it's just going to be a major decision because Either way they go, someone is going to be very upset. Hmm. It really doesn't, there's like, I just know a lot of people who are not even free speech absolutists, but just think that it's a very dangerous, dangerous idea that you allow a private platform to completely ban an individual, like a politically elected leader that's like democratically elected. Including Angela Merkel. Uh, she she also w expressed her worries when people were were championing this decision. I mean, Germany was concerned. Yes, Angela Merkel, and then there was Navalny in Russia. Like he spoke out against it and said that. I mean, and like you saw. I mean, and he's no friend of Trump. And then there's you know there were a lot of a lot of leaders that saw this as a problem. Um, and I think it is a problem. Um, and I don't know how they're going to solve it. If they put Trump back up, I think there's going to be a lot of outcry. And I think if they keep Trump down, there's going to be a lot of outcry. And so in, in either capacity, um, the other thing that kind of we haven't talked about and is like a, something for people, anyone who wants to write on this, it's like ripe for being written about. But like there's just this idea of social media allows us to do is to have kind of this very low cost to like amplifying tons of speech. So what it looks like is that there is this massive push or this massive collective of people who disagree like let's say that the oversight board decides that they're going to restore trump's account mm -hmm. and people are outraged at that re at that action and that that outrage 
is grows so much or takes so much purchase that Facebook feels like they have to do what the crowd Please says, right? They, what pleases people and not what the oversight board says. And so that's kind of this tension that I think that we're headed into. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, again, this is not a new, but this is everything old is new again. So this is one of these things that this is a very old problem. But Facebook could not override the decision of the oversight board, right? Oh, no, they absolutely can. They can, um, this is something, this particular decision was given to, was sent to the board under one of the provisos um, in uh, in the charter and the bylaws that are outlined, uh, which Facebook rec can recommend a case to the board and Facebook is not obligated to, oh. to remove, to follow the board's ruling. Right. So this is like really, truly going to be a test of the, of, 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 basically, I would say political and reputational power. If there is a group mm -hmm. that can very much, you know, or a, a faction, a very large faction, or maybe even a majority that can generate enough outrage to keep, to keep Trump down, maybe that is what Facebook does, uh, because they, you know, they're forced to in some in some capacity. Wow. And when can we expect this decision? Um, I think that under the rules, it should be coming out um, 90 days from when the case was referred, uh, but they have to leave time for Facebook to to respond to it. So I think that that's probably going to be like the beginning to middle of April. Okay. And one last thing, what from the experience, I mean, you describe, you know, these buildings by Frank Gehry and, and, and all this atmosphere that's very foreign to most people. What was the most surprising thing out of having spent time close up with with everyone high up in Facebook? And I think that the biggest, the most surprising thing is just how massive the company is and how much the media And people generally speak about the corporation as if it's not made up of people that want to do good things or try to do good things. And I'm not saying I'm not talking about like I'm not talking about the C-suite. I'm talking about the factory floor. And I kind of feel like there's just not enough conversation around that and what it looks like when you've decided that you're not going to go into government. You're going to go and work for tech because you think that that is mm -hmm. the way to affect more change and more and better change. And I think that that's like a, I think that there's like a whole story of trying to work within these companies to do good things. And Facebook kind of gets cast as this, as this, um, this painted with a very, very broad brush. And I certainly think that that's fair in almost all capacities, but it's not true necessarily of the people that work there at the lower levels, especially that they don't have a really big say in a lot of these types of things that they're doing. Professor Klonik, thank you so much. Uh, wonderful discussion. I mean, we I, I, I could go on for another hour, but I'm respectful that I promised a certain cutoff time and I'm sticking by. I'm so happy to have this conversation. This was one of the best conversations I've had about this in a while. So thank you so much. Oh, that makes us so happy. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Dive. If you support our mission of bringing you the world's foremost experts to explain the world right now, then please subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Dive Podcast. 